Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. Now I have been very excited about this episode. I think we're going to have some fun today. So Michelle and I are here with a special guest and that's Dr. Kirsten Mills who teaches in the Department of English here at Macquarie University. And Kirsten is a specialist on all things fantasy literature which is obviously very relevant for our purposes here today. I should also explain that Kirsten is here as our resident Harry Potter expert. <laughs> I am here as your medium Harry Potter expert. And my dear friend Michelle is here as somebody who knows absolutely nothing about Harry Potter. <laughs> the last living relic of a, of a, of a Harry Potter free uh, mind. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> Michelle is the last living human being who has no knowledge of Harry Potter. So this is going to be a fun one, guys. <laughs> All right, we might start with Kirsten. Kirsten. Thank you for having me. Um, well, I guess one of the most interesting things about Harry Potter is how it's become this huge sensation. It's kind of um, moved beyond books at this stage. Obviously, there are the films, but it's such a part of pop culture now that I'm sure, Michelle, perhaps you could say something about what you do know about Harry Potter, having never read the books. You know, I have actually been to the Powerhouse Museum and seen an exhibition of Harry Potter stuff. So, because right. having children, um, and although I have to admit, because their mother doesn't read Harry Potter, they they own them, they just haven't read them. And but my friend has a son who, since the age of about two, has actually insisted upon wearing um, a sort of wizard hat. And actually, he we went through the whole exhibition, and he was fully decked out as as Harry Potter, um, including <laughs> glasses. <laughs> and he was no more than three. Um, so, so, Isn't so, he too young to have read the books? I don't. I, do you know, no, he hasn't. I don't know. No, he no, probably knows them through the films. I don't know. Yeah. They're quite violent. For, I'm now th thinking that I don't want to sort of make my my friend seem like a bad mother, but I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking that yeah, he was really young to have watched those films. Is Maybe he the other sibling, or are there other kids he interacts with that are familiar with Harry Potter that he would picked it up from? I, look, I, I didn't interrogate it at the time. I did not interrogate my friend. She asked me to go. She asked me to go to the Powerhouse Museum, which must have been some years ago, and I did. And I felt like I was being a good mother because, although I haven't actually read Harry Potter to my children, at least I'm taking them to a museum exhibition on Harry Potter, which yep. in itself is a fascinating, um, you know, sort of phenomenon that, that 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 a book has actually reached the point where you can have proper sort of museum exhibitions. I did I did go to that exhibition myself many years ago. Um, I don't remember much about it. Um, but it's yeah, I agree. How many books have museum exhibitions set up around them? I can't think of many at all. Exactly. Um, I find it particularly interesting because looking at the genre, I'm, I'm a reader obviously that's familiar with fantasy books, other books. And one of the um, it's both a criticism and a celebration of the Harry Potter books is that it got kids reading. That was one of the big sort of catch cries of the um, marketing campaign was that, yeah, kids started reading, um, but then academics started looking into how they're reading and what they're reading, and they found that they're reading Harry Potter and then going back to the beginning and reading Harry Potter again <laughs> <laughs> rather than branching out and reading other books. Now, that might be changing. I think um, more and more books are starting to be published now that are catching on to the Harry Potter marketing sort of phenomenon, mm. that are differing themselves enough to establish their own pathways. But, yeah, it's a really interesting question um, about what comes first in terms of are these books original or mm. is there something else going on there? 
Well, I mean, when I was first, I, I came to Harry Potter a, a little bit late. Um, I think I picked up the series when maybe the fifth or the sixth book came out. And when I first was introduced to them, and I was older, I was an adult, I wasn't a child, um, I noted straight away, first book, Roald Dahl. Definitely, yeah. The whole first book, Scream, Roald Dahl, especially um, the Dursleys, mm. um, Harry's um, adopted family, or his, his aunt and uncle, um, seemed to me straight out of Roald Dahl. Um, and that impression, they get darker as they go along, obviously, because they, Harry grows up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that impression kind of fades for me. Like it, it seems less Roald Dahlish mm-hmm. um, as it goes along. But through that first book, I thought, oh God, I've read so many books like this before. Definitely. <laughs> I thought so too. And I think, um, I think there, the tone is mm. possibly very Roald Dahl as well as some of the characters. We've got the twits in there, you yeah. know, Matilda's family um, yeah. very much like the Dursleys um, but yeah the, the tone I think the humour the emphasis on humour is something that Rowling keeps returning to in interviews mm. she keeps referring to her jokes are funnier than other people or things like that <laughs> Yeah. until we get to Roald Dahl which is interesting she, she refers to C.S. Lewis because people keep bringing up similarities saying are you inspired by this text are you inspired by that one she says well with C.S. Lewis her jokes are funnier C.S. Lewis is very preachy but with Roald Dahl, who is obviously quite a master of humour and is well known for that, she says her her books are different because they're more moral. So we kind of go mm. the other way. So she's kind of somewhere in between C.S. Lewis and Roald Dahl in that respect. Well, because, I mean, in actual fact, my sort of text, you know, my, my sort of Harry Potter was C.S. Lewis. Mm. And I actually attempted to read C.S. Lewis to my children because I have the um, the anthology. And unfortunately, C.S. Lewis, I think in terms of language, doesn't hold up. Mm. I mean, I don't think he's making any attempt to be funny, which makes no. it a sort of a, yeah. a, a, a moot point. But I think that unfortunately, there is something um, very uh, archaic and, and, and sort of convoluted in, in, his, in his syntax that actually, and, and dated in his language mm. that um, sort of prohibited my children from losing themselves in that book mm. the way that I did. And I think the other thing is that, you know, sort of in my generation, which is pre-internet, you know, sort of pre-sort of Disney, um, you know, sort of franchise movies, pre Praise so much. <laughs> it's um, it's almost a, a foreign um, world. Um, y- you know, you I lost myself in in C.S. Lewis, and then I guess my reading sort of grew from there because I was forever looking for books that would replicate that yes. experience. And because there wasn't, because there weren't movies to um, you know sort of to follow on, because there weren't you know sort of infinite number of um, the the merchandising and the uh, um, additional sort of paraphernalia that goes along with mm-hmm. um, and, and also because see, it was it was a finished you know he was he was dead I think, I'm pretty sure he was dead by that time there were no more that were coming mm-hmm. and and so there was no sort of sense of a living author who was going to continue yeah. meeting my demand mm-hmm. for more and so the only option available to me was actually to go further afield yes, exactly. um, which I guess isn't the case of, of reading these days because most terrifyingly is that even if um Rowling herself isn't willing to continue writing um, Potter. We have, you know, sort of infinite number of people willing to create supplementary or, exactly, or substitutions yeah. for what she's doing until it yeah. all sort of dies. A Particularly as the property of Warner Brothers now, we've got the film franchise, we've got spin-offs, we've got all this mm. extra stuff going, toys, you know, everything. Um, I think, 
I think that's a really um, interesting point about the uh, that I think that's part of the key success of Harry Potter was that Rowling was writing as they were publishing. So with the publishing history, the first four books were published really quickly because they wanted to catch readers. Um, they wanted to get them in, get them going. But by then, the, I think the next one took about three years to write. Mm. And within that time, though, Rowling's doing interviews and people would ask questions. What, what's going to happen next? You know, what happens to Snape? What happens to Dumbledore? What happens to this? And she says, I know the answers, but I'm not going to tell you. And so it's that baiting, that yeah. hooking, you know, uh, whereas a lot of other authors that we might read um, you know, particularly ones that are long gone, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, we don't have that anymore. We have just the finished product. We read it and it's kind of a closed text in that way. Mm. But yeah, Rowling keeps this alive and it's part of this grand idea that it's a living thing as opposed she's to She's still doing book. that. She's still doing she's that doing, through, yeah. through Pottermore, exactly. um, her website. <laughs> she keeps giving us more and more information, you know, years and years after the book series is finished, she keeps, you know, saying, oh, but I, I didn't mention this about this character and I didn't mention yeah. this. So she's still, she's still keeping <laughs> exactly. readers on the hook in this way. But it's kind of disingenuous really, isn't it? I mean, I, I I'm kind of surprised, I'm surprised by the naivety of those questions because, I mean, in any sense... I, it's just, it's for, for me, I'm, I'm having a sort of a category sort of mistake experience <laughs> inside my brain because I'm just thinking, don't people realise that they could just as easily make up these alternative endings? And yeah. it's just, and it is sort of part of that cult of the author, isn't it? Because Definitely. the author is the only one who can actually give you the valid alternative yeah. or the valid, you know, sort of continue and continuance of something, which is an actual fact incomplete. Um, you know, sort of, it, it completely. Um, co- contradicts the very nature of fiction in, in some respects. That's right, yeah. or, it be, or what it does is it creates a very particular sense of what an author is, what an author's power is, what an author does. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in a really deferential and fascinating way, which is then countered by all of the um, spin offs and derivatives and, mm. you know, sort of fan fiction and mm. all of those sorts of things, which sort of shows this incredible sort of um, cornucopia of, 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 of what is. You know, sort of Harry Potter and our shifting understandings. Of I wonder what if that has um, anything to do with the fact that as child readers, we're more likely to be immersed in in those worlds, um, and and kind of not be as cognizant of the fact that you're reading fiction. Because I remember I also grew up with C.S. Lewis, and I remember you know doing things like screwing around in the back of wardrobes, hoping to find Narnia <laughs> and so forth. Um, yeah, of course, <laughs> you, you knew I was, of course. Um, so. You know, maybe that kind of impulse to find out what happened next is because we, as as kind of child readers or, or young adult readers, we're more likely to kind of think about these fictional worlds in a way that blurs the lines between fiction and reality, yeah. whereas I think as detached adult readers, we're more likely to go, okay, well, this is, you know, a, a literary creation and how is it made and, you know, think about literary constructs and so forth in a much more kind of extended way. But I think in this case the, the boundaries there are, are being blurred. Going back to what yeah. Michelle was saying, in terms of I think this is where celebrity meets literature. We've kind mm. of got this weird, especially with Twitter, Rowling's very active on Twitter and this is the sort of sphere in which fan ideas about characters get put forward, but Rowling either agrees with them or puts them aside and says, no, that's wrong. Mm. And this is this authority. She's, so she's stamping true. down as authority on her own literature, which is fine except that this whole death of the author, you know, once the text is out there, who's to say her continuing ideas about what it might mean, which could be changed later. We've had this in, um, you know, when she starts bringing politics into it and using Harry Potter to as an analogy for current political situations. Mm. Oh my God, and there's Father. questions mm-hmm. about whether 
when did that meaning come into it? Is she using it retrospectively? You know, who has the power to do that? In some sense, it sort of maybe goes some way to explaining the the, the phenomena, because in some mm. sense, ruling is God, and it's making the world feel safe because <laughs> there are answers and exactly, right and wrong, wrong and truth. Yeah. And well, um, I found that interesting as as um as Trump was inaugurated, all of the the memes and so forth on Twitter about mm. um how we needed to to summon Dumbledore's army in yeah. order to defeat him, <laughs> yeah. which it, is either hilarious. Or or actually really telling. <laughs> I think both. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, father, I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> and and Trump is, as like a Voldemort figure. Yeah. So obviously she wasn't thinking about Trump when she was writing the novels because the novels se- yeah, seriously predate no. Trump as a political figure. But it, but they've been co-opted as a kind of um, way of, a, of rallying a, rallying the troops so to speak, as a kind of resistance movement. Mm. Which in Um, turn adds more of a sense of legitimacy and uh, going back to this, what makes the book so popular, mm. this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of if something is so prevalent in the public sphere, it must have merit. Mm. Either it's extremely original, it's the first of its kind, or it's the best of its kind. And I think the Harry Potter phenomenon's kind of gathered those labels as it's gone on, not without some resistance. But Mm. in most people's eyes, we have a, a huge swathe of the global population familiar with Harry Potter but not familiar with any other fantasy literature. In fact, people, I've actually talked to people that say, I hate fantasy I'd never read fantasy, except they've read Harry Potter, they love Harry Potter (laughs) because everyone else does. (laughs) I was wondering Kirsten, if you could talk to to some of those precursors of Harry Potter because I Mm. think that um, a lot of fantasy literature gets very short shrift because people sort of assume that Harry Potter came into the world as this you know, product of of Rowling's imagination and that nothing yeah. like it was ever done before. But just as we've mentioned with Dahl, there's so much that predates this. So much. Um, it comes right out of a really rich context. This, the 70s and 80s particularly were really um, fertile ground for fantasies being published. We've got heaps of them. Um, but Rowling herself, this is one of the most interesting quotes, I think. She says, uh, the question you're most frequently asked as an author is where do you get your ideas from? As she says, I find it very frustrating because speaking personally, I haven't got the faintest idea where my ideas come from or how my imagination works. And here's the deflection. I'm just grateful that it does because it gives me more entertainment than it gives anyone else. So Mm. it's got a lovely sort of um, emotional meaning attached to the end. But the the key part there is that there's no acknowledgement of how her imagination works or what sources she's drawing from. Mm. Now, even if you're not consciously drawing from many of the very similar texts that were published around the time that she was writing, I think in retrospect, at at some point you're aware of the history or you can flag the genre that you're drawing on. I'm Mm. also thinking E.B. White and the chivalric, you know, sort of Arthurian sort of legends Mm. as well. You know, sort of the Merlin figure for me is just, you know, it just leaps off the page. And I think, you know, I know that, you know, sort of part of my um, sort of literary landscape is, you know, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien... Um, white, all, all of the um, you know sort of n- nameless authors mm. that I've read that have in some ways mm. um, you know sort of sculpted something that made you know those uh, motifs like the castles, the this, the flying broomsticks, the the aged yeah. men, the all mm. of this sort of thing, um, in, incredibly resonant mm. and recognisable to yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just not in any way, shape, or form anything that I haven't seen before. Yeah, exactly. And so I think readers that are already familiar with these things don't have a problem recognising them. People familiar with the fantasy genre, even just through C.S. Lewis or Tolkien or things like that, don't have that problem recognising them. But then young children whose first encounter is Harry Potter 
often don't look too far beyond, beyond that because we've got um, C.S. Lewis, I think, is harder to read than Harry Potter. Mm. Tolkien's definitely harder to read than Harry Potter. Um, a lot of them are. And a lot of the books that it draws on uh, that it are, it's quite similar to are just older and they didn't have that massive global impact that Rowling's texts had. Things like, um, I've got little my old little copy of Spell Me a Witch, Barbara Willard. That's a little um, 70s gem. And there's also um, The Worst Witch, which is enjoying a renaissance of a TV series at the moment. Um, so that's Jill Murphy. And that's one of the ones that was published before Harry Potter. But critics often didn't do their research and would say, so did, you know, are you copying Harry Potter? Oh. Yeah, And this happens classically to a lot of people. Mm. Ursula Le Guin, um, you know, Marvelous. 30 years yeah, before Harry Potter. I know, writing. So, definitely. Jane strikes me as somebody, yeah. Definitely, she's in there. So... A lot of these authors are being questioned about, so, you know, is Harry Potter where you got your ideas? As if Harry Potter comes first, and it's just because it's almost the loudest voice in the room, but it's by no means the original or the first or the necessarily the best. Do, do you think it has something to do with the facility of the language? You know, because in, in some sense, um, you know, sort of in, in having originally, um, I guess, written this story with a younger audience mm. in mind... Um, you know, we, we have language that offers us no resistance, mm. you know, and I think that perhaps deep down it, it sort of, it, it might, um, you know, because I, I think it's hard to compare, you know, what, I mean, what would C.S. Lewis have done today, you know, sort of yeah. given the, you know, sort of the, 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 the possibilities of, 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 you know, sort of internet Twitter, you know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to compare. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think it was possible for that sort of global phenomenon. No, definitely. This is a without thing, the I technology. Think, yeah, I think but, it happened at that particular moment of this increasing sort of globalisation, mm. the sort of um, the rise of the internet, mm. chat forums, people. This is a viral marketing at the very beginning of word of mouth when the internet gets involved. Suddenly word of mouth becomes global. Mm. And it's also speaking in the tongue of this particular generation. Because one of the things, I, I sort of see the other side of that because on one hand you know sort of children and my my brother's children all devoured harry harry potter mm. you know sort of and lived in as she said and relived and lived and relived yeah um but what i see is, is especially as as um is writers you know because i teach creative creative writing mm. and so what what i see is a huge spike in the number of uh you know sort of students who sit down and write fantasy yeah um and with absolutely and only Harry Potter in mind. <laughs> exactly. Um, which for me seems, you know, there's a tremendous paucity in, 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 that, in, in that approach mm. because there's, there's just, there, there, there's no ability to sort of, to sort of think through tropes or, or, or to think through traditions and inheritances mm. and, and yeah. also just that very deep, you know, sort of history and fascination yeah. that, that makes something compelling. And I think that's one thing that Rowling does have. Now, whether readers recognise this in her works or not, she is aware. She um, she cites British mythology, She's she draws on the classics, um, the Bible, she, she acknowledges T.H. White, the Sword in the Stone, things like that. Um, oh, but, yeah, but uh, her writing is steeped in very educated reading um, and research about all these different things. So she's working these traditions into her text, which is the only reason why I think not acknowledging more recent um, you know, examples of the genre 
I'm not sure if that's a, a marketing thing because we have this idea of, of divine inspiration almost, the magic of yeah. imagination. One person's mind that is so far above everyone else, so brilliant that it could come up with this whole world. Mm. Except lots of people are also coming up with similar worlds, but we're not acknowledging them. I think that uh, that uh, that idea of, of rolling as this you know divine divinely inspired creator of worlds is something that's that's really part and parcel of her marketing Mm. um she she i think that she cultivates that image of her as this divinely inspired genius but um as you were talking about um about influences on her i was also thinking of enid blyton because underneath Mm. all of these books is there's one book per year of school yes and it takes you from the beginning of the school year to the end of the school year and all of them, even even um, book seven, which kind of deviates from that school setting, even that kind of takes you from the beginning to the end of a, of a school year. These are boarding school books. They definitely are. I used to devour boarding school books, yeah. and um, you know, she. I think she is kind of disingenuous by by not kind of copying to those kind of influences um, yeah. in the way that her imagination is formed, because she's working with such established genres. Very and, established. You know, yeah. she's she's entirely. Um, capitalizing on that kind of romantic notion that we tend to have, especially those of us who, in, you know, growing up in Australia, most of us didn't attend boarding schools, but that kind of really romantic notion of like having fun with your friends and, you yeah. know, having all of these adventures <laughs> and you were going to save the world in your spare time, yeah. etc. I think so too. Uh, there's an, um, speaking of Ursula Le Guin as we were before, she, she a positive thing she says about rolling is that um, she gave the fantasy genre a boost, mm. you know. Whether that's true or not, because as we said, people tend to read Harry Potter and then reread Harry Potter mm. <laughs> rather than reading other fantasy authors. Um, but she does also say, um, this is her quote, I didn't feel she ripped me off, as some people did, though she could have been more gracious about her predecessors. My incredulity was at the critics who found the first book wonderfully original. Mm-hmm. She has many virtues, but originality isn't one of them. Yeah. Mm. Now, I think that's that's true. Um, now, I don't want this to come across as a criticism. I don't think um, lacking in originality per se is a bad thing mm. because she's working within a genre and it's a wonderful it's genre. Mm. It's intertextuality. It's, it, if yeah. anything, it makes the books wonderfully rich because if you know the sources, you can then follow them up mm. and you can expand your world, your understanding of magical worlds and things like that. Um, it's also part of the writing process. It is. And there is no text process. that is completely original. No. no. It, so I think the problem there is when either your marketing campaign or your readers start to claim that it is original and mm-hmm. cut it off, divorce it from its sources, which I think in a way uh, it dilutes the potential power there. You can get so much more out of reading a text like this if you are aware of everything that's come before it. I think it's actually part of the pleasure too because I remember yeah. picking up the first book and, you know, as I said, I had those resonances with Dahl and, and with Enid Blyton mm. and that actually was part of the appeal because it felt like putting on you know a warm pair of pyjamas or something yeah. you know it was like it's going familiar. somewhere where I'm familiar and comfortable yeah. and I knew how it was going to sort of play you know pan out yeah. I didn't obviously know all of the twists and turns of the plot but I thought okay by the end of this book you know Harry will have finished his first year at, at Hogwarts and um, some kind of adventure will have happened but he's going to be okay and he's going to live to the next book because the next book's called Harry Potter 2 <laughs> so you know I yeah. knew that he was going to be fine in the end um, and it made me just feel warm and comfortable but yeah. I also think the most fascinating part of that is, is, is sort of inverting that phenomenon and, and sort of thinking through why does a particular sort of generation or, or, or you know, sort of audience need X, Y and Z. And for me, there's something, there's something really egocentrical about claiming, you know, sort of sole 
um, you know, sort of sole creative genius. Mm. Mm. And, you know, so, so that, that's, as you say, it's very much part of a, a marketing campaign that speaks to a whole population who want to be, you know, the, 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 who want authors, who, who, who want, you know, sort of things to actually reside within, you know, sort of the individual imagination mm. as though the individual imagination is, is somehow, first of all, divorced from its, its social network mm. and yeah. its traditions and also terrifyingly from its history because I think as soon as we exactly. start forgetting our history mm. yes. we walk into really sort of dangerous territory yeah. and that's what scares me but also I keep thinking about the tropes that are being employed rags to riches I've never read Harry Potter but I know she wrote it or I believe she wrote it in the car is that mm. right? <laughs> she wrote it I think in um, in cafes and in the car and she was a struggling single mother for um, a while as she was writing it and obviously now her wealth is beyond astronomical <laughs> yeah. um, so you know there's a bit of life imitating art because Harry Potter is this, you know starts off as this raggedy little little creature and then becomes you know the, the, the chosen one the saviour of the world um, which is, is mirrored in the marketing campaign of rolling success yeah. she is that raggedy mm. sort of unfortunate down and out that mm. yeah. came good and was the chosen one to represent writers everywhere and the you know, powers of imagination. And Rowling capitalises on that link between her and Harry Potter yeah. because you know she puts Harry Potter's birthday on her birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. so uh, it's it's all become part uh, of this kind of mythology of, of um of Rowling. And I think it says <laughs> such interesting things about literary celebrity yeah. in the twentieth yeah, in does. the late twentieth, early twentieth century. It also century. really scares me because what I'm listening to is I'm I'm listening to sort of Ursula Le Guin who's had, you know, sort of a really eloquent position on on, on Google, on Amazon, on, on, on so many really vital sort of elements that are shaping, you know, sort of reading and, and, and actually subjectivity as we speak. So, mm. But what you hear is that what she's doing is she's offering us a very sort of nuanced and far more sort of complex understanding of any one phenomenon. Mm. And what we're doing is we're going, yeah, well, that's the book that goes okay but doesn't go ballistic. And what we're wanting is the book that tells us that there's one author, one source, one beginning. And in actual fact, it starts to feel more Trump-like than, um, <laughs> yes, you when know, you put it that way, I think yeah, yeah people crave. Mm. People, I think simplicity. we do crave simplicity. We crave a simple answer. We crave comfort. Mm. We crave someone saying it's all going to be okay. It, it comes down to good and evil. And if you just focus on love and friendship and trust and those things, that's great. But yeah, but, but then when you start looking at when we're living exactly. in a really complex world, which is completely and utterly beyond yeah. know, those sorts of very well, that's the solutions. Thing. And that's what I think the power of Ursula Le Guin. She, one of the things she says, and she's obviously very much into psychology and to um, Jung particularly and his mm. connections with what artists yeah. are doing and sim symbolism and things. Yep. And it's very much about readers making their own meanings, mm. which, as we were saying before, is something that I don't necessarily think Rowling is doing. She's not no. necessarily allowing you to believe whatever you like no, because she's actually read. saying it's certain it's people are wrong. It, but <laughs> yeah. it's also a straightforward yeah. read. It's one of those other sorts of moments which, yeah. you know, and I think the thing that's really important is that there's nothing wrong with those reads. Like no. I don't believe in sort of that hierarchy where, you know, like you can't, there's, there's something inherently wrong about sitting down and reading like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what it is, it's, it's when it sits uncritically and it becomes formative and a productive, you know, sort of power in itself. And yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know, is, 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 I mean, considering that the way that we're going to sort of fight Trump is by um, calling on our armies of what are we calling Dumbledore's Dumbledore's. Army. We, we're yeah. call, I, 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 I mean, I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm hopeful that, 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 that you know that's that's a strong military tactic or, or a strong. Ta <laughs> but I, I, I'm not convinced that we. we I'm not convinced that it's going to get very far. I don't yeah. know. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. just my suspicion. As a symbolism, <laughs> I think for the readers, it's powerful. It represents um, dissent against authority. Um, you know, of a, of a horrible kind. 
um, it represents standing up with what, for what you believe in, essentially. Mm. Um, going back to what you said about history, though, I find this really interesting. We're talking about um, the cult of sort of celebrity and author um, and the way it's divorced from history and it kind of gathers its own authority. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's recently, the British Library's just recently announced that it's having its own exhibition on, <laughs> now it's on the history of magic. So it's it's gathering um, ancient sort of texts through its collection on alchemy, on sorcery spells, all of these wonderful things have nothing to do with Harry Potter, except that they are the sources of inspiration for Harry Potter. Now, the interesting thing is that um, the exhibition is entitled Harry Potter, A History of Magic. Mm. <laughs> and they've tacked on, they've got some illustrations, they've got some notes from J.K. Rowling, which is great. But what they're doing is kind of adding, they're co-opting this Harry Potter phenomenon and retrospectively tacking it onto history so they've got this wonderful historical exhibition but one of the um descriptions of it actually subtitles it an extraordinary new edition to jk rowling's wizarding world that's but a, the, the new amazing. edition is hundreds of years old so the, these are historical <laughs> objects we've now gone hey everyone look this is now part of jk rowling's world and i, I feel like it's kind of the same thing a lot of um i hear a lot of uh, when I'm, whenever i'm in england i hear a lot of american tourists particularly it, it doesn't matter where they're from particularly but they seem to be american for some reason <laughs> walking through those little cobbled streets in york and oxford mm. which were used in the harry potter films and they go oh, it's a harry potter street you know oh, it's just and nice, so this quintessential yeah. british architecture this historical mm -hmm. sort of artifacts and things are now harry potter artifacts they're harry potter images wow. it's amazing how it's 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 like an octopus it's like its tentacles are everywhere isn't it yeah. you know to, to, to brand the whole history of like of people england. dealing yeah the whole history of england yeah that's right and the history of like magic and a belief in the supernatural yeah. is somehow exclusively of interest because it might illuminate something about harry i mean that that strikes yeah. me as as both kind of laughable but also kind of worrying like i think that i mean as a, on a kind of personal level, I kind of get annoyed at my students sometimes when they have mm -hmm. them, they show their kind of impulse to kind of go back and keep reading Harry Potter over and over yeah. again. I just think, you know, there is so much um, more out there in terms of fantasy. And if you are, you know, if you read Harry Potter and you're inspired and you think all of this, this kind of world of fantasy and magic and all this is really great, go out there and read something else. Yeah. You know, it'll make Harry Potter richer. It won't take you away from Harry Potter. But I also think there's a tremendous power for subversion there because I, I have a friend who curates a, a museum and, and so, you know, sort of the standard strategy is to have one big sort of draw card who, you know, everybody may have, everybody in the actual art world may have moved past or, or doesn't actually think is that great, but they mm. know that they will get, you know, sort of the feet through the door. The popular yeah. appeal. And yeah. so you can sort of see this sort of strategy in place where, you know, sort of get the people in. Mm. Once they're in under and the Harry shut the door and, and you know, <laughs> yes. you know, sort of you will be educated. Educate about. them by stealth. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's right. I mean, I, I'm sure that, that that's got to be. I, I can only... Oh, no, definitely. Um, so it's got these positive and, and negative but of connotations. Course, yeah. Yeah. But, but of course, that whole um, what is it? It, it, it? It's just an inversion. It's a backwards. It's it's, it's a sort of a, it's a disruption of chronology, isn't it? Yeah, um, and it's just I think again this sort of speaks to like almost almost co-opting this entire history of magic as if it's it it's marketed as if it's almost an invention of of J.K. Rowling again. Mm -hmm. You know, she um, I think um, who was it? Neil. Neil Gaiman, or I think it was Terry Pratchett, I'm sorry, I can't remember mm. which one, again, wrote a very similar uh, plot line to Harry Potter before Harry Potter was published and was asked, um, you know, did you steal 
J.K. <laughs> Rowling's ideas and he said he, well oh was it after I can't remember but it said basically yes of course I stole their ideas of course I used a time machine to do it mm. but you know <laughs> I think that was yeah. Pratchett it sounds Queen. like Pratchett don't you love the Queen yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it is interesting because I mean I think you know sort of Gaiman is probably um, and Pratchett are sort of good sort of sort of touchstones to think through because mm. I mean they've obviously been successful mm. um, but just not on that scale and I, I wonder I, you know sort of because I, I mean I've always enjoyed Gaiman and um, and, and Pratchett's writing and I'm just now I'm, I, I, you know I haven't avoided them in the way that mm. I've because I have to admit there's been a con- you know at a certain point there was just I'm not reading yeah. Rowling no I'm mm. not ever <laughs> right. um, it, it's, it's, it's a point of principle um, but, but yeah I'm, I'm just I'm just curious is to sort of the the, the the features that allowed you know sort of the the, the Potter phenomenon not whereas as I say the, the, relatively speaking mm. it's a much more contained um, you know sort of um, fandom. Well, I think Gaiman and Pratchett are very very popular within a defined kind of fandom, I suppose, mm. of, of fantasy readers, whereas Potter seems to be the thing that transcended fantasy circles and yeah, became, exactly. you know, a general kind of phenomena. It's not it's not um, nerd cred to have loved <laughs> Harry Potter in the way that it's, you know, it's you're part of a kind of group, maybe, or a cool group who like Pratchett, okay? Mm. Um, mm. I think that Harry Potter is the one that, that stood out. And I do think, to go back to your point before, Kirsten, about... Um, the internet and the rise of the internet um, and canny marketing and also I think that you know we've kind of been a little bit down on, on, on Harry Potter so far <laughs> but I also think they're just enormously entertaining oh they're absolutely that's one of their biggest strengths like, go back to we, we did mention how funny they are they're very yeah. humorous I think that's one of their keys but mm. it's also the way they balance humor and emotion mm. they've got real emotion in there um but also particularly, this is another thing that Rowling comments on about books she likes. She often refers to the power of the narrator. Mm. And I think that's something the Harry Potter books use quite well. They use vocalisation really closely. We're often told about Harry's hungry or Harry's cold or scared or whatever. We're right there in his shoes experiencing Hogwarts. Mm. And I think, I think being in Hogwarts is almost more important than the adventures. I think it's the chance to go and live in a place. And we have this um, rolling off and always... You know, she says that thing about... Hogwarts is always there to welcome you home. Mm. It's that idea that it's a real place. We can go there anytime. We just have to open the books and keep rereading them because mm. we want to keep going back to Hogwarts. And it's a lovely, comforting, wonderful idea. Um, I just wish she would open some of the doors of Hogwarts and show us through to other worlds created by other fantasy writers. Yeah, and I think that another strength of hers that, that really struck me when I was first encountering these books is her characters. Yes. Um, she's really good at creating these different kinds of characters so you've got you know harry who's the the hero and the 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 central focus but then you've also got wonderful kind of side characters and she also does adult characters quite well yeah usually in in in, um you know young adult or children's literature the the adults can be kind of shadowy presences but she does some really really vivid adult and complex adult characters not necessarily i mean dumbledore's a great example of that he's not you know an unflawed character but he's not a monster at the same time so she Mm. does she has the capacity to incorporate nuance into her characters and personally when i read the um the harry potter books um for the first time i just latched on to hermione granger because come on (laughs) a girl who loves books with frizzy hair (laughs) to my soul (laughs) yeah i think um yeah in that way when i was reading her works i i 
um, I came across them first time as a teenager, and I remember thinking how Dickensian her characters were, particularly mm. the names as well. Mm. So he had that similar knack of a rip-roaring plot, very entertaining to read, with wonderful characters that the first time you saw them, you knew exactly what they were going to be about. Mm. Um, you know, so when we first meet Draco Malfoy, we know exactly what he's going to be like. Yeah, because his name is Draco Malfoy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the first thing he says is extremely arrogant. Yeah. Um, you know, similar things um, with, with Ron and, and Hermione. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, it's this very powerful, vivid um, evocation of a world, of character, of, mm. of people and place, really, that makes it feel real. Mm. I think in that sense, um, partly that's why it makes it easy to read, and um, what makes it easy to keep going back and reading. Yeah, it's that kind of immersive experience mm. um, that, that you get in, in really amazing children's literature, um, where you feel like you are in a, in a world, in a, in a kind of comforting world. As, as a, I know it's not a fantasy um, example, but as a child I was very much into Anne of Green Gables, mm. and I felt like I could walk into Anne of Green Gables' world and walk around and navigate it. Yeah. If, I, if I entered Green Gables, I'd be able to find the kitchen and all this sort of exactly, stuff. Exactly, yeah. And, and <laughs> she's very good at picking up on that kind of mm. um, potential of children's literature, I think, to make you feel like you're immersed in a home, you're immersed in a kind of familiar environment and that you're safe. Yes. Well, I, you know, because I mean, I actually love that Dickensian sort of aspect of it because I think, you know, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. But the thing that I'm just thinking listening to you both is that really what she's done is, you know, she's managed to sort of create both a new audience in the sense of the generations who've sort of never read C.S. Lewis. But I, I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing is this tremendous nostalgia. Yes. And, and oh, I guess because one of the most, you know, sort of the thing that's really boosted her sales from what I understand is the fact that she's just so read by adults. Yes, that's right. You know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and so you can sort of see how by some sort of miraculous um, and, 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 and probably quite um, fateful sort of um, combination of events, mm. she's actually sort of managed to both, you know, sort of stimulate the imaginations of those who haven't read fantasy yet, while at the same time through, you know, sort of completely and utterly um, immersing um, sort of older readers in pretty much everything that they could possibly have read, because I'm hearing Dickens, yeah, exactly. I'm hearing Lewis, mm. I'm, I'm hearing Tolkien, I'm, I'm hearing White, I'm hearing, you know. So, mm. so, so in a sense, it's no wonder. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I'm going to have to read it because if I'm going <laughs> to revisit all of my, you know, sort of childhood, um, you know, sort of favourites. Then the I may yeah. be an absolute sucker for this book. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it's familiar and it's safe for the adult readers, particularly um, parents reading it to their children, mm. who by the time the movies came out a few years later were old enough to take to the movies as a family event. Mm. And then these children grow up into older generations that keep rereading it and then read it to their children. Mm. And it starts. It's we're, we're now in the world where the generation that grew up with Harry Potter is entering the workforce, mm. and you know yeah, we've got this absolutely. proliferation of people that are now super familiar with Harry Potter. I think one of the cleverest things that Rowling did um, when she wrote the series is have the novels get older in their kind of orientation as Harry yes. gets older. Yes. Because it really gives you a sense as a reader that you are growing up with Harry. Definitely. And that's why I think that, that, that some people have such a, especially if they read Harry Potter as a, as a child, that they have such a strong emotional connection to these characters. Yeah. Because you aged as as Harry aged, and so say you know you were, you first read the the first book when you were eleven, and then you might read the, the read the next book when you're thirteen. You're you you were going through the same kind of developmental mm. um, milestones as Harry. You know, dealing with kissing girls all of a sudden. You know, <laughs> when he does, and all of this sort of thing. And so mm. you kind of she draws you into that kind of um, sympathetic 
reaction or engagement with Harry. And yes, as adult readers, and, and as I mentioned, I was a, an initial adult reader, um, it did give me a strong sense of nostalgia for that kind of reading experience that you have as a child and then you can never really properly have again as an adult because as an adult you can't kind of lose yourself in a book in the way that you do yeah, exactly. as a child. And it made, it made me just remember what reading was like when I was, you know, a, a kid. Yeah. And and gave me that kind of sense the of pure comfort. enjoyment of it. Yeah. yeah. And almost a not a turn your brain off response because it's not that, but it's it's a kind of um really pleasurable sinking into reading as pure pleasure. Yeah. I think um the the fact that you sort of mentioned that the books um they get more complex as they go along as well um mm. to sort of match the ages of the reading groups as they move along. Um so by the by the last one it's a lot more complex than the first mm. one. If you compare them they're almost different entirely different books mm. um but yeah I, I think i think you can also tell though in the writing when the movies start coming in mm. i felt as a reader again i was um a teenage still at this point or maybe um early 20s i'm not sure but by the i felt like i could pinpoint when she was aware that it was going to be made into a movie because scenes started to be written slightly differently almost as if ready to be translated onto the screen mm-hmm. um i think so that's a really interesting point do you think yeah. craft improved you know, sort of writing craft improved from you know, sort of the first to the last. I think I think so. In my opinion, it did. Yeah, mm. um, I think so too. And I think that there was um, more kind of um, meat for parents, particularly to yes. sink their teeth into in the in the latter stages. And I think that's why that the books have this kind of political resonance now because they started to become more about Harry versus um, corrupt authorities and corrupt mm. kind of institutions. And there was more of a, um, a focus on the kind of political allegorical aspects of the text in the mm. latter text. So that yeah. I'd say from, say, book five to book seven, that was much more of a focus, whereas the earlier books weren't necessarily devoid of those things, but it, they weren't the focus in the way that that kind of more um, political, symbolic, allegorical aspect of the latter texts became. And those aspects were handled well. I'm just I'm just curious because I'm, I'm thinking that in terms of sort of understanding the the, the sort of the immense popularity mm, and yeah. you know sort of what what significance you know sort of the, the, that sort of corruption of you know sort of people in power mm. um, has in terms of generating that that popularity. I think because um, it started. I mean, we were talking about other popular authors, Dahl and everyone, um, Le Guin, but what? What they don't have, while they've got lots of books, they don't have a seven-book series. Mm-hmm. That you know, we, the books get progressively bigger as well, mm. like hugely long. Chunkster books, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think in terms of developing uh, the meanings um, and the scope of the text, as they get longer, <laughs> you can put more in them. Mm. But you also, you've already done the groundwork. You don't have to reintroduce the society. So by book in book one, you establish the world, the magic world. By book seven, we're very familiar with it, and so then we can start tinkering with the nuances within it, mm. the political sort of differences. Um, we're aware of different characters and what their motivations might be. Um, you know, I think it just it creates more context and more ability for us to understand it yeah. across seven books in a series rather than a single novel. Look, and, and I guess I'm also just very aware of other things that have sort of changed from you know sort of in terms of reading practice and television watching pro, pro, um, practices and, and film going practices and, and it seems to me that there is a sort of a, a real tendency for binging you yeah. know mm. in a way that just wasn't available possible you know sort of years before you know things like I guess 
you know, sort of Netflix, I guess, things yeah. like, you know, sort of, I, 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 don't, I don't even know, but I just, I just feel that there is this really sort of, um, and I don't even know what that binging is, but it, it, it seems it's because it, it's it's sort of a, a phenomenon that is 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 foreign to me because I, I don't you know I, I don't understand that that sort of um, you know sort of ability to just completely and utterly um, immerse yourself um, consume to that that level of consumption. It's a really heightened sort it of is. consumer um, quality, isn't it? It's like mm. a hyper consumer consumer yeah. you know sort of really sort of late capitalist <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the thing i think mm, it goes yeah. back to um this sort of the timing of harry potter yeah beginning mm-hmm. of the internet um huge multimedia across all different so we've got the, the mm. pottermore website we've got a host of different fan websites we've got rolling on twitter but mm. the the you know um the movies we've got media just consuming it we've got harry potter being used in marketing analogies and political commentaries you know yeah and you know it, it's, it's everywhere. It, it struck me too that one of the kind of the fun parts of the initial kind of harry potter phenomenon was the kind of sense of event reading mm-hmm. you know especially when the, the the latter books came out not so much the first couple of books because people were sort of still finding the series but when the movie started to be um to come out and then there was these you know event parties on release night and so forth there was a sense of kind of fun and um a sense of um that this is an event that a reading that this kind of reading is an event and people would you know get the book six or book seven and and read it over the next you know 10 hours or whatever um and then go on on the internet and talk about you know what they thought and so forth and so there was a a kind of really interesting kind of binge on the books as they came out that then kind of flowed through into into public discourse in in such a huge way and so then you get Mm. you know people i remember when book six came out there were you know people would put banners up on streets that spoiled the books and all of this sort of thing because because it came yeah because it became such a kind of public event in the way that you know only kind of television had been a public event you know people used to talk about water cooler television and you know gathering around the water cooler the morning after a a big tv show happened to discuss what happened and that and harry potter for me was the first time that became part of the literary world so, 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 so it's a social sort of activity, isn't it? And I guess it's yeah. also a way of inclusion and exclusion. But I'm, I'm also thinking that there's something um, insatiable about this. You know, like I just I keep coming back to this yeah. sort of insatiable quality of modern what it is. culture. Now, yeah. you mentioned Netflix. Um, there's that. Yeah, there are all sorts of memes that go around now about the reality that a lot of people don't sit down and watch a weekly episode of television mm. anymore. We watch mm. an entire series. Or or three seasons, Mm -hmm. you know, in one day or two days, you know, we just sit there and just consume it. Mm -hmm. And if there are um, sort of ancillary texts, you know, like with the Harry Potter world, there's so much out there. There's just so much more to consume. And the more you consume, the more rooted you become in that world and more resistant, I think, potentially to other worlds. I know whenever I finish a Netflix series and start a new one, it takes me a while to get into the new one because Mm. I'm like, well, this isn't. It's yeah, not the this, same. Is, this isn't mm. the one that I've, I've been. I've, I've yeah. now familiar with. Yeah, so it does take some work, I think, to open your mind to other styles of writing or, or television, other ideas, other worlds. I and rolling it's worth the effort. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. And rolling feeds you so much, doesn't she? Yeah. She's constantly feeding you, and then yeah. and then the internet. You almost don't have time to get hungry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And and the internet being what it is, you know, I remember um, watching videos on YouTube which I stumbled across, which were which were 
children or young adults um, doing the quizzes on Pottermore that tell you what house right. you're in. Oh, right, yes. And I thought, you know, there's this such an insatiable um, desire for content. I thought, why would anyone want to watch this? But then at the same time, people do. Um, yeah. So that, that there's that kind of... Um, constant feeding of the audience that keeps them on the hook all the time mm. and so it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where where the more that Rowling gives you the more you want and so she gives you more and then you want more mm. um, and so there's this real cycle that's created and I mean if you're a, a Harry Potter obsessive you're not going to complain are you? Because no. I guess what we're identifying is that on one hand there is a book a book as we know it as we've always known books but it can't or it can no longer be divorced from a machine and that's yeah. probably you know sort of sort of of course you know it's this particular book which allows us to have that specificity in terms Mm. of understanding you know sort of this particular phenomenon but what we're actually sort of gauging is is you know sort of this sort of ever-growing sort of um because you know like the 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 number of media that you can experience this on whether Mm. like you were talking about twitter you're talking about you know youtube because i know those things where you actually watch I mean, I think there's one really weird one which my daughter stumbled across where she was, and I, I, I was drawn into the room because I could hear this man with a Swedish voice. Um, <laughs> and I, it immediately sort of signaled alarm bells. I, I don't know why. And I walked in. And of course, what it is is, is you can actually, he, we've got this sort of enactment of, you know, sort of, sort of Harry Potter sort of moments happening. So somebody just doing a little sort of skit, I guess. But it's, it's a it's sort of a, like a YouTube sort of thing, and and so yeah. you, so you, YouTube, Twitter, mm. um, you know, sort of message boards, yeah, you know, this, mm. this sort of stuff, and 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 so a huge it, array of platforms that never used to exist. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. And to go back to your point about seventies and eighties um, fantasy, it's not like after you read Spell Me a Witch, you could go online and talk to you know no, seven hundred exactly. other fans of Barbara Willard. <laughs> you know, you just yeah. had to sit in your bedroom and go, I really liked that book. Yeah, by yourself. <laughs> yeah, the most you would do is talk to your friends at school about it. Um, yeah, which is fine, but but that word of mouth only goes so far, and then you grow up, you know, and you particularly if it's not a series, you leave that at the age group at which you read it, and then mm. you move on to other books. Whereas, as we were saying, Harry Harry Potter or Rowling taps into that. She goes, okay, I'm going to stay with you as you grow, as you gather more reading skills I'm going to still be there you're going to keep reading me <laughs> well and it's funny too because Harry Potter and the Cursed Child the play that's that's happening mm. in, in, in London at the moment is about Harry as a father yeah. so there you go so her <laughs> initial fans are growing up they may be becoming parents themselves yep. and now we have Harry Potter as a father for you to identify anew with <laughs> but there's sort of that embedded irony too in, in a text that's sort of making the world sort of more um, manageable more you know sort of more secure more certain it's actually generating this incredible chaos it's Added to the cacophony <laughs> yeah. that is modern existence mm-hmm. in, in this incredibly, you know, sort of pixelated way that that is, you know, sort of really just. Um, I, I'm 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 feeling levels of anxiety, you know, sort of shooting. <laughs> you know, sort of, so are we I, encouraging you to read no, Harry Potter, no, no, no. or are we doing the opposite? You, <laughs> you almost had me for a moment when you started sort of talking about all those illiterate, and and now I'm just feeling terrified yeah. by you know yeah. sort of what's out there and uh, the degree to which I, it's penetrated. I think um I think that's the thing if. If we can, if we can just sort of extend the dialogue a bit around Harry Potter to be more aware of the other texts that are similar or um, share certain similarities but many differences as well, they're not all cookie cutters. Mm. Not by no means suggesting I would never suggest that the fantasy genre is frivolous yeah. or um, that produces similar products. I think they're all wonderful. They all have their virtues, but we need to be aware of this 
ancestry really and even mm. before I mean, a lot of people refer to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien as if they kind of created the fantasy genre mm. before but then we've got George MacDonald in the 19th century you know mm. um, William Morris even we've got a huge array of writers um, that's where my research really looks into is the origins of the fantasy genre mm. around really that time mm. and it's yeah Walter yeah. Scott even yeah. earlier yeah. Frankenstein yeah. things mm. like that um, the people don't read anymore. No one reads, well, not no one, but barely anyone. No popular audiences tend to read George MacDonald anymore. And yet mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis draws so heavily on George MacDonald. And George MacDonald is, is using portals to enter magical worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got this whole coming of age story of a young man who realizes his inner gift and, and goes into a magical world, things like that. Nesbitt, very similar. I, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm wondering also, you know, sort of whether it, it's sort of that thing where on one hand we have the book. You know, which I think we can talk about in these terms, mm. but in actual fact, the book is really dwarfed by the machine. You know what I mean? Like it's it's you know a lot yeah. of. It, mm. Do you know what I mean? Like in in some sense. Well, also but, too, yeah, you can be a Harry. Conflate the two. Well, I mean, you can be a Harry Potter fan and not read the books because mm. you can you can yeah, a- exactly. access the movies and you can access the fan fiction and you can access you know the play or the musical or whatever. Um, so you can actually be a dedicated and claim your status as a dedicated Harry Potter fan without ever touching the books. Yeah, and I think even even if you don't claim that you're a fan, you're. You, I don't think there's anyone in the Western world, at least, that is not aware of Harry Potter and roughly what it's about, mm. purely because of how prevalent it is across vast discourses. Well, that's our friend Michelle here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that brings us back to our original point. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> that Michelle has never touched a Harry Potter book, but somehow... Yeah. <laughs> can talk for then, almost an hour about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really love your point, Kirsten, about like the, the 19th century and the earlier forerunners to Harry Potter because I think that again they point to the, the sort of uncritical way that some people approach the books but they also point to like all this potential like is Definitely. it you know it, there's so much potential for people to go out there and read all of this sort of so stuff. So much yeah and, and in a way I'm hoping that's partly what the um, British Library exhibition yeah. will do um, in, in you know co-opting hundreds of years <laughs> worth of actual history yeah. as a new addition to the Harry Potter world mm. I'm hoping that it'll sort of ask readers to move beyond Harry Potter a little bit mm-hmm. you know enjoy it for the wonderful um, entertaining ride that it is the great ideas it is a wonderful use of imagination brilliant books mm. but there are so many more that, mm. it, that it is so many more cousins of Harry Potter I would say very closely related just outside Hogwarts if you just take a few steps but also yeah. actually question that reading process and like, what, mm. aren't there different ways of reading and so we have our reading when we're really wanting to lose ourselves immerse ourselves mm. but also that that equally sort of important thing is, is, is the books that challenge us and make us actually think about the fabric of the lives that yeah. we're leading yeah and I mean it would also you know from we've talked about the kind of forerunners to Harry Potter but there are also lots of books out there now um as you as you said that there's a, there's been this flowering of the of the fantasy genre so there's heaps of other books out there that are yeah. similar fan, you know fantasy science fiction and so forth mm. that you know readers could um, readers of Harry Potter could very much appreciate. I'm thinking of the Magician series by Lev Grossman, mm. um, which was marketed as a kind of Harry Potter for adults um, because it has yeah. you know, a few sexy bits in it. <laughs> um, and so there's, there's there's much potential for Harry Potter fans, I, I suppose, to kind of venture out of the safe world of Hogwarts and discover something new, but something related. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I think um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when we've got enough... Uh, 
I think Harry Potter will always be celebrated in some mm. way. It's reached that classic status already that Roald yeah. Dahl before it has... Um, it's you know, it's got it was, its... Um, yeah. There was Carol... Alex That's right, yeah. So most texts that deal with um, real issues but in a humorous, enjoyable way, worlds mm. you can immerse yourself in. It's very much a book like that, and which is great. Um, but I, I also look forward to the time where we publish books without needing to tag them with yeah. Harry Potter-like. Potter Potter yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the that would be Harry nice. Potter, you know, yeah. it would be nice to... Um, celebrate books in their own merit again. If, mm. You know, if it, it just comes down to this idea again of originality. If we could just drop the idea that Harry Potter is necessarily original, or that mm. it needs to be original in order to be good, mm. that would be great because it's wonderful, even though it's not particularly necessarily original. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And it would be. It, I, I think that Harry Potter has kind of already been kind of accepted into the into the canon of children's literature. Yeah. Um. It and it would be nice to say kind of. Um, maybe a little bit less attention paid to it and a little bit more attention paid to other kinds of similar works and to newer works as well. Mm. I mean, which is not to diminish Harry Potter, but also to say that, you know, there's a lot of other stuff out there that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> that, yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Uh, yeah, I don't think um, Harry Potter needs to be um, lowered in any way or criticised mm. or put down. Yeah. That's definitely not what we're doing, rather than just raising up the other texts that, yeah. that it draws upon, raising them out of the shadows and saying, hey, well, look look at this wonderful world that's open to us if we just, yeah, look a little outside our comfortable boundaries. <laughs> Venture out of the Hogwarts um, yes. hall, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask you, Kirsten, what house are you in? Oh, oh, gosh. Um, doesn't everybody <laughs> say Gryffindor? <laughs> no, I say Ravenclaw. You say, I thought you'd say Ravenclaw. Um, I, I would say Gryffindor. Okay. Well, I don't think we'll ask Michelle because Michelle has no idea what we're you talking about. You can put me in the house. How does that sound? <laughs> I think that Michelle is definitely a Ravenclaw. Um, I'll and... ask you about that after. So. <laughs> don't oh, tell you. her what it means. <laughs> All right, we might wrap up there. Um, thank you so much, Kirsten. That was amazing. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we really appreciated your expertise and thank you, Michelle, for bringing you uninformed opinions. <laughs> we hope that we have not turned you off Harry Potter too much. Uh, all right, so we'll see you in another two weeks. Thanks, guys. That was fun.